And let me say a very good evening to you. If we haven't met before, my name's Ken, and I'm one of the ministers, along with Ben, here at St. Joseph's. And as Ben said a moment ago, we're starting this uh, little mini-series called Good News uh, for a Confused World. And uh, I guess the first thing that I want to say as we start off is that I'm well aware that uh, some of the issues that we're going to raise and talk about in this series uh, are very personal and raw for many of us, with significant implications for some. And so if you're coming here this evening uh, struggling with your sexuality or with gender identity or with what to think about gay marriage or with sexual temptation or, or even God, then I want to say, welcome. You're not alone. The odds are that you might feel like you're alone in whatever it is that you're thinking through or going through. But I guess we all have questions, don't we? Especially about God and whether he's there and what he's like. But who am I? And what does it look like to live the good life, my best life now? And I think those questions are so, so important to ask because how we navigate them provides a framework or a story, if you like, by which we make sense of all of our doing and being in this, these areas of identity and sexuality and gender. You're probably aware of how we, we use story to kind of make sense of reality, or, or, or psychologists talk about just using mental maps. Kind of storytelling creatures, aren't we? And if our mental map makes sense of the reality around us, then we feel in control and feel confident we're gonna get to our destination. But if it doesn't, then we feel lost and confused. Like I wonder how many of you um, are stressed about uh, the prospect of getting home tonight. I don't think I've um, touched on a raw nerve there, have I? I don't think you're stressed at all because, because you've got a story in your head about how that's going to play out. You know, let's just, I mean, you might have got a bus or a the, or the, or the, uh, bike, um, uh, but you, let's just say you've got a car. I think that's maybe the, the majority. And you, you know where it's parked. You're pretty confident it'll be there when you go back. You know, you've got a key in your pocket or your, your bag. Um, and actually, do, please don't start rummaging around just, just checking. Now you are stressed, aren't you? <laughs> Is it still there? Um, but if I hadn't raised it, you wouldn't be stressed. You'd be like, no, I'll just walk up to the car. I'll unlock it. The, the fuel tank's pretty, pretty full, and there's enough, more than enough. The, the car always starts, and, and it will get you to your destination. And so you relax. But this is the... This is one of the reasons why, why this particular topic we're looking at these next two weeks is, is so tricky. Because culturally, we live torn between two stories. <laughs> and so we often don't know which one to believe. And that creates a tension. The first story is the dominant narrative in our Western culture. Uh, John Mark Comer, in his brilliant book, Live No Lies, which I'd really recommend to you, he shows how... Uh, this story finds its roots in the Enlightenment. Here we go. We're going deep straight away with a bit of, bit of history. 17th, 18th century, thinkers like Descartes and Jacques Rousseau, uh, they started to map uh, an understanding of reality by answering our key questions as follows. This is what Coma says. Who is God? Well, 
I think, therefore I am, actually. That's what Descartes said. But, but Coma says that the, the Enlightenment thinkers answered, who is God, by saying, well, reality was invented by us. And so, therefore, was God. So God is the fruit of our imagination. In fact, there is a spark of God in all of us. So who, therefore, am I? Are we? Little gods and goddesses. Authentic selves whose desires are the source of all wisdom and direction. Who must be free of all external authority to actualize. Sorry, there's some big words in here, but, but to, to live up to our potential. How then do we live? Be true to yourself. Follow your desires and don't let anyone tell you what to do. Does that sound familiar to you? Especially that last bit? That's the philosophy our culture is essentially built on and which led to the sexual liberation revolution of the 1960s, which has seen evolve five shifts over the last half a century. First of all, the first shift is is separating sex from childbearing with the invention of birth control or the pill. The second one is separated sex from marriage. And then thirdly, sex from lifelong loyalty turning a covenant into a contract with the rise of divorce law. And then from there on to the LGBTQ plus movement that separated sex from male-female relationships. And now it's moved onto the current transgender wave, which is an attempt to separate gender from biological sex. And if the goal of a revolution is to overthrow those who are in power and replace it with a new government, then we have to say that the sexual revolution has been one of the most successful revolutions ever. And while it must be acknowledged that actually over this period of time, there's been great progress made in terms of issues like uh, um, gender stereotyping, women's rights, uh, the way that... Uh, well, the dehumanizing way that uh, we've often talked or, or treated people who've been really struggling with their sexual identity. We're now 50 or 60 years into this experiment, and so the question must be asked, are we really flourishing in a way that we went before our liberation? Is this a true, better story? It's just assumed that it is, isn't it? But there are a growing number of people who are now starting to say, no, 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 it's not. Look at the data. <coughs> One of those is journalist and author Louise Perry, who released a book last year called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. And before you think it, no, she's not American. She is very English, as we're about to hear. We'll get a clip of her. Um, and she's not a Christian either. Uh, but we're going to show you just a, a little roundtable discussion that she had on Christian Premier Radio uh, a month or so uh, back, um, where, yeah, we'll, we'll see her putting forth her argument. Let's play the clip. And just sketch out a little bit the sort of the nature of the, the sexual culture that we're living in and why you think it ultimately favours male sexuality, actually, ultimately, more than female sexuality. So a premise that I start with... Um which is a very controversial premise in feminist land, but is um, probably less so in the rest of the world, is that men and women are fundamentally different in some very important ways. And uh, some of those differences are physical 
um, and some of those differences are psychological. Mm. And the psychological differences are average ones, and there are outliers, but they are nevertheless real, and they're important at the population level. So, for instance, men are higher in a term that psychologists call sociosexuality, which is one's desire for sexual variety, essentially, a drive towards having... Um, Multiple partners. Casual sex and so on. And so on. Exactly. Yeah. And um, there is overlap, but in terms of the the whole population of men and women, men are further towards the unrestricted end of the sociosexuality spectrum, which no one, I think, should be surprised to hear because that obviously should sort of hold true in, in um, our experience of the world, but it's just very, very difficult to say in progressive circles where the blank slate doctrine dominates. Um, but I start with that controversial premise, and from there I say, okay, well, what we've seen post-sexual revolution has been a rejection of Christian sexual ethics and an embrace of freedom per se as the ultimate good. And the popular progressive narrative around the sexual revolution is that you um, you shake free of these old oppressive norms, you inject more freedom into the system and expect people to arrive at more harmonious sexual relationships. I don't think that's what we've seen at all. I think that what we've what we have essentially seen is that the women have been encouraged not by conspiracy generally, but by a new kind of culture, a new kind of incentive structure to imitate male sexuality, to imitate that that more unrestricted sociosexuality. The sort of sex in the city type yes. uh, Jessica Parker sort of stuff. Yes, yeah. so, so, so hookups, so watching porn, so experimenting with fetishes, all these things which suit the interests of people who are naturally more sexually adventurous, but don't, I think, suit the interests of the vast majority of women who are not naturally that way inclined, but are encouraged, I think, to see that as aspirational. Because it's purportedly a, a liberating kind of form of sexuality. That's exactly. And the only reason that you wouldn't want to do those things is because you still had hang-ups, right. you know, derived from the old so, traditions. So you've you've sort of noticed this, and you've you've you, it, the book, as I say, comes to, in a sense, some surprisingly traditional conclusions in that sense, essentially saying by the end chapter, well perhaps we need to reconsider going back to what was we had before the sexual revolution, the idea of monogamous marriage. Um, uh, I mean, that's a, a pretty stark kind of conclusion to reach. How's that been received by people, my by your agree. peers? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yes, yeah, so a common view among um, feminist friends and colleagues who've read the book is they love it right up until the last chapter where I make the case <laughs> for monogamous marriage. But I, I, I mean, I, what I try to do in that chapter, it is the, the controversial chapter, is to make that argument in entirely secular terms mm. and to use as much data as... Yeah. as, as and well, I think that's what... I, Louise Perry, there at the end, she, she talks about using as much data as... Uh, possible, and there's a lot of data out there just to show, uh, yeah, that the, the, the havoc the sexual revolution has played on our society and a staggering amount of pain um, in our society's collective soul um, over, over the issues that have come out of it. And, and so uh, uh, John Mark Comer actually um, uh, uses quite a lot of data as well, and so I've put together, a, if I can get it, um, a little sheet I've collated this, which I thought you might be helpful for you if you want to dig into the, the data and, um, and the results of the sexual revolution. 
Um, uh, and you can find that on uh, the display racks just at the back um, over tea and coffee. A friend of mine asked me a, a few years ago, uh, just, well, why, why Christians get so het up about um, these issues? Uh, he said, it's just sex. What's the harm in it? But I'm standing here uh, this evening, not just as some kind of speaker guy, but as a pastor who meets up with people regularly and sees the damage that has been done in their lives and listens regularly to the pain in their hearts. And so I suspect there's not one single person in this room who hasn't been hurt by the effects of the sexual revolution, from a parent who left the family, from divorce, from betrayal, from infidelity, from insecurity, from porn, or sexual addiction, or domestic abuse, or trust issues, or detachment disorders, or if nothing else, just body image and insecurity in our meat market culture viewed through a filter on Instagram. Our culture's attempts over the last half century to uncouple sex from family, from marriage, from gender, from loyalty. It's been naive at best. American pastor Bill Johnson has said, when you get rid of the creator, you remove the concept of design. When you get rid of design, you get rid of purpose. When you get rid of purpose, you get rid of the need for accountability. There is nothing to be accountable to. When you get rid of the need to answer for your choices, you remove the fear of any consequences. When you remove the fear of consequences, God is out of the equation. The Bible says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so with no God and no wisdom, all that we're left with is total sexual confusion. So, what about the other story? It's a story even older than the Enlightenment, as old as the hills. It's the Bible story of identity and sexuality and gender, which Jesus affirms and doubles down on in Matthew chapter 19. The religious leaders of the day are kind of buzzing around him and kind of quizzing him on God and sexuality. And Jesus says, have you not read that he who created them, which is <laughs> answer to question one, isn't it? Who is God? Is there a God? Well, yes, there is. There's a creator. There's a God. And from the beginning, he made them male and female. Who are we? Well, here Jesus quotes Genesis chapter one. We're male, we're female. God designed the body and he made you as a man or a woman. And in the language of Genesis, your maleness or your femaleness is good and blessed. And so if you're here tonight and you're struggling with your gender identity, I think I want to say to you, we recognize your struggle and we want to honor that and the pain that you feel in that. But the Bible tells us that your gender is not an accident. It is a gift from God. So please do not throw it away lightly. Human beings are made in the image of God. <laughs> what a mind blow. What a massive thing. And part of that image bearing involves us being equal and yet differently gendered, interlocking 
sexual beings. You may have seen this advert, which was run by the Dutch airline KLM a year or so ago, and it ran with a strap line. It doesn't matter who you click with. But as you look at the picture, you can imagine just how Twitter went nuts over this. Even people who are really pro-gay were going, that's just daft. Because the majority of them don't click, do they? And if you're running your airline like that, I think that's a serious uh, kind of safety issue. But whatever we might be encouraged to believe, uh, that, that gay sex is no different from male-female sex, we know deep down that that's not true. One fits in the sense of this image. The other doesn't. One can produce children, be fruitful. The other doesn't. And Jesus says, those facts are woven into the very fabric of creation, how God made the world. And Jesus goes on, for this reason, ah, so there is meaning and purpose to our sexuality, there is a reason for marriage and for romance and for sex. And, and here it is. As he goes on, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus now quotes Genesis chapter 2. The first marriage reminds us that actually marriage was God's idea in the first place, not ours. And he also invented sex, which is the one flesh bit. It's when two people make love, it is the interpenetration, not just of two bodies, but two souls. Sex and sexuality have a, have a power. I, th I think we kind of instinctively know this. That's why it feels special. That's why it's so intriguing. That's why we get so worked up about it, actually, when we talk about it. That's why it matters so much. I was reading the other day about a research a project that was conducted by a couple of doctors looking at brain scans of people who had been sexually active and had recently broken up. And what the scan showed was that the same part of the brain lit up in their situation as if you break a bone. I think that's neurological language for two people, one flesh, and a tearing apart. Which is why the Bible teaches us that the only relational container strong enough to hold the nuclear power of sex, which is so strong <laughs> that it superglues souls together and makes them one, is a man and a woman in lifelong marriage. So they are no longer two, but one flesh, Jesus continues. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. As a marriage is not a contract, which you opt out of when you're no longer happy or it's not really working for you, but a covenant in which you promise before God and your community to love again and again and again, to will the good of another ahead of your own, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death us do part. That's the Bible story. One man and one woman for life. That's the only safe, God-ordained context for sexual union. But again, 
we need to ask the question, don't we? Is it a good, true story? Is it a better story? <laughs> How can it be? <laughs> Come on, Ken. <laughs> you say that sex is only for, for male-female relation, uh, marriage. Okay, okay. Just let, run with me on this. and Let's see where this vision for our sexuality leads. Uh, we're going to have a Bible reading now and, and Jasmine's going to come up and give us, give us that. And it, it, it shows us a, a bit of um, how that moves forward. On you come. Bible reading is taken from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honour. Not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brothers in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Okay, let's finish up with three reasons why God's vision of sex and identity is a better story. Firstly, because it's tied to our transformation. If the message of the sexual revolution is uh, follow your feelings, do whatever gives you the most pleasure, then the message here in 1 Thessalonians 4 is live in order to please God. Live to please Him, isn't it? And grow in that, verse 1. Do so more and more. Uh, followers of Jesus are called to ask about their sexual identity and practices, not who am I or even what do I do, but who am I becoming by the way I handle my sexuality. Yes, we are, we are all accepted by Jesus, just as we are. Every uh, one of us is broken and wounded by the struggles of this sin-stained life. So if you've, if you've failed, or you feel like you're failing in this area, please, please, Look up and see the face of Jesus smiling at you, saying, this is why I died. To wash you, make you clean and forgive you. Failure is not fatal. Forgiveness is forever. But please also know that Jesus doesn't want to leave us like that. Uh, which is why in many passages in the Bible about sexuality, we're given prohibitions. Uh, not to restrict our freedom, uh, but to save us from deformation, of, of, of growing in the wrong way. Like in 1 Corinthians 6, where we're told to flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. That phrase there, sinning against your own body, it has the, has the sense of distorting your personality. God is saying that our sexuality doesn't simply touch our behavior, what we do. It deeply shapes our ability to come, to become who we were meant to be, who he made us to be. 
We know growing up that, that you spoil a child and deform their character if you just give in to every whim that they have and just say, yes, yeah, go for it. And yet, when we grow up and become adults, I think sometimes we're tempted to throw the wisdom of the universe out of the window and say, no, I can be whatever I want to be by pursuing the desires I find within myself. But rarely does this produce life-giving love for others. Our sexuality produces selfishness rather than servanthood and begins to distort what we want and how we want it. And so God, in, in his great kindness, says in 1 Thessalonians 4, that for, sake, for the sake of our growth as a person, those who are following Jesus need to do three things. Verse 3, abstain from sexual immorality, all sex outside marriage. Verse 4, learn self-control, not in passionate lust, like those who aren't following Jesus. And verse 8, spiritual fullness, submitting to the Holy Spirit with our sexuality. Saying no to our desires is hard. I mean, it's really hard, isn't it? We all know that. But Christians believe that the ability not to engage in sex is actually a tool for our transformation. It is a gift given by the Holy Spirit that forms and disciplines our desires to help us grow as servants of Christ, not as selfish lovers. So wherever we're coming from this evening, the challenge for us is to bring our sexuality to the person of Jesus, who was a friend of sinners and so kind to those who struggled with their sexuality, and ask him, please shape and form me. I want you to be Lord of all of my life. Every state of my life, even my aroused state, here I am, God. I offer this to you. And secondly, God's vision is a better story because it is a signpost pointing us to something greater. It is designed to remind us of the great true story that we're all really longing for deep down. As the story of the Bible unfolds, Marriage is used as a metaphor for the relationship between God and his people. With God as the faithful husband. And his people as the unfaithful wife, actually. And then Jesus comes. And on a number of occasions, he, he refers to himself as the bridegroom. The bridegroom. And as we... Read on in the New Testament, you find that God's plan for sexuality and marriage from the very beginning was designed to show us just how much he loves, God loves us. And so the Bible ends not with a picture of heaven as being angels sitting on clouds, polishing halos and tuning harps, but of Jesus marrying his bride, the church. I get that might sound a little bit weird to you, particularly if that's the first time you've heard that. But please see what God is saying. Built into the very fabric of our society and marriage, in, in our sexuality, and in, in this longing, this desire for union that we have. 
is a pointer towards our ultimate need, actually, for him. A God who, through the person of Jesus Christ, has loved us, has chosen us, has rescued us, has seen us at our worst, and yet has committed to us unconditionally for as long as we both shall live. And that is nothing. And that is something that that death cannot part us from because of his resurrection. Marriage is not a destination. It is a signpost, folks. Which is why Jesus said that in heaven there will actually be no marriage. Because there we will be completely and wonderfully, totally fulfilled in relationship with him without a need for marriage. Which is a reminder to those of us who are married not to look for too much from marriage. And it's a reminder to all of us whether single married or single again, that if our faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, then the best truly is yet to come. And so lastly, lastly, let me say that God's vision of sex and identity is a better story because it is a witness to the world. I think we easily forget that there were three main reasons why the early church won over the Roman Empire as a, highlighted in this um, uh, great little book, The Rise of Christianity by Rodney Stark. One, how they died. They died forgiving their enemies. They died with hope. They died believing that the best is yet to come. Two, they were radically generous with their money, with their lives. Even staying to care for the sick during to empire-wide pandemics while everybody else, well, they didn't run back to their flat or their house like we did during COVID. No, they ran for the hills. And then three, those early Christians, they were faithful in their sexuality. There is a letter from the second or third century to a fellow called Diognetus, which gives an account of these distinctive qualities that were seen in the Christians of the time. And the author writes this, Christians marry, as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They believed in sanctity of life, just as crucial for us today. They have a common table, hospitality, but not a common bed. Faithfulness in marriage. And these small practices in the way of Jesus subverted the might of the Roman Empire over the course of 300 years until Christianity became the dominant religion in the Roman Empire. And since then, subsequently, has become the dominant ideology on which our Western culture is built, even if we are now abandoning it. So as we close this evening, I simply want to say this. And all of these questions and issues and and really personal, maybe raw challenges that we might be wrestling with in this. Where the culture seems to be saying the exact opposite of what Jesus is saying. We must not underestimate the power of God's word. We must not underestimate the power of God's spirit. We must not underestimate the power of bringing these things into God's light and allowing God to speak to us and and shape us by his word through his spirit.
I was chatting to a friend recently about an event he spoke at a while back where he got heckled like he'd never been heckled before. He was speaking on issues like this and a woman at the back of the room just started laying into him. How dare you say that? You're a straight man. What do you know about these things? My friend handled it, I think, by the sounds of it, with a grace and a voice that I don't think I would have been able to pull off. But afterwards, another woman came up to him and said, I just really want to thank you for what you said. It, it was great, and it matters so much. To which he, you know, kind of modestly, as you, you never quite know what to do as a speaker when someone's like that. You just, thank, thanks, and you try and shrug it off. But she continued. She said, I'm a lesbian. And I've been in a civil partnership, and I recently came to faith, and so did my partner. And we've come to realize that the life that we were leading wasn't pleasing to the Lord Jesus, so one of us has moved out of our house, even though we've adopted together a child. And we're now, with God's help, really trying to work out how to do life in a better way in God's story. And I just wanted to say thank you so much for encouraging and supporting us by what you said in doing that. And when my friend told me that, well, I just marveled. Just as I have done on a number of occasions when other people have personally told me about the struggles that they've been having with their sexuality and their desire to go God's way and be faithful to Christ for the sake of their, their own formation as well as others who they're becoming. I've marveled when people have told me their stories and I feel really humbled and privileged to see the Spirit at work bringing new birth and transforming our desires and the power of the light of God's Word. So whatever it is that you are struggling with, wrestling with tonight, please bring them into that light. Bring them to the Lord. Let's do that now, as I say a prayer for us. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the goodness of the created world, including our sexuality and your word and the guidelines you have put within your word. And we thank you for how you release and encourage and strengthen us by your spirit. And so I pray for each one of us here as we wrestle with these issues, that you would give us wisdom and grace in our own lives and courage where we need it so that we may be able to walk the path of godliness and become more like Jesus and stand on the promises of his word and be a witness to the world. Pray that in his name for our good and your glory. Amen.